Good evening, everyone. Tonight we will be reading 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 to 16. My prayer for tonight has been that by the power of the Spirit we would all be edified, challenged, and possibly even convicted as we look and delve into God's Word. I know I have been in my preparation. There are two pretty well-known Christian organizations who every two years takes a survey of adults in the U.S., both secular and evangelical, to gauge the theological temperature we live in, to help Christians better understand today's culture, and to equip the church with better insights for discipleship. What do Americans believe about God, salvation, ethics, and the Bible is what they are looking at. Here's just a brief brief synopsis of their findings. And these statistics only come from the evangelical side, not the worldly perspective. The Bible affirms the truth that the triune God is both omniscient, meaning that he knows all things, and immutable, meaning that he cannot and does not change. 48% believe that God both learns and adapts to different circumstances. That means he is not omniscient or immutable. We are born innocent without a sinful nature. 65% agree. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% of evangelicals believe that. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% agree on that. The Bible is not literally true. 26% agree. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and is not about objective truth. 38% believe that. And gender identity is a matter of choice. 37% agree. I'm reading a book by Thomas Vincent, who was a Puritan minister in the mid-1600s. In his day, he lamented the state of Christianity and said there are many Christians in name, but few in deed and truth. He goes on to explain why and ends with saying that very few who profess Christianity are actually true Christians. If that was true in his day, how much more so in ours? I think this survey may unfortunately give us glaring evidence of that. And that is why the verses we will look at tonight are so important. So let's read 1 Timothy 4, 11 to 16. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, so doing, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Let us first remember the context of this letter. First and foremost, the letter is written to Timothy about how he is to conduct himself, what his life of faith needs to be as a leader of the church. All the commands instructions, exhortations, encouragements, and warnings are meant for him first and then to pass along to the church as far as how do we are to live and conduct ourselves. So whether it's praying for government leaders, how the church should operate, the danger of false teachers, or his life of faith, it is first the example he is to set and model before the church. Then there's application for us. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Paul is giving two imperatives to Timothy. Last time I spoke about the awesome authority God has given to church elders. It really is otherworldly. 
No person called to this office can or should ever take it lightly. Praise God that none of our pastors here do, because it is a serious undertaking and really is the most important calling anyone can ever have. Paul also wants to make that clear to Timothy and is therefore telling him the duties of a faithful minister. These are not up for debate. This word command means to order or instruct with authority and conviction like a military command. The minister is not to be passive or lackadaisical in handling God's word or impressing its truth to their flock and then also holding them accountable. Teach here means just that, to teach. So why does Paul say command and teach? Because we need to know that God's word is not to be taken lightly. God's commands on his people are not to be picked and chosen from. I'll take that one, that one, and that one, but not this one, are never to be uttered from our mouths. We accept the whole counsel of God, or we accept none of it. Of course, that doesn't mean that we can't have some disagreements or even spirited debates over certain parts. Is there really a literal thousand-year reign? What exactly is the rapture? Is a real city actually come out of the sky? These are fun to discuss, but do not relate to our salvation, so we can think of them as secondary discussions. But when it comes to the core doctrines, there is no wiggle room. Paul uses this militaristic type of language because we are in a battle. Satan wants to steal our souls. Although he can't do that, he loves to slip erroneous doctrine into the church and to put doubt, worry, and divisiveness into its people. Paul knows this, and so he uses this type of language. Timothy as a leader, and we, as all soldiers, so to speak, must take God's command seriously. What would happen if a general said to those under his command, we're going to take that hill, and then everyone just turned and ran away? They would probably be charged with cowardice and dereliction of duty. And not that we will always and absolutely follow God's every word, but to blatantly disregard it time and time again, and to not give him and it the reverence that is deserved would be us saying, no, God, I won't follow you. And that would be a dereliction of the highest degree. So first, the minister has to be convinced convinced of the seriousness, seriousness of God's word, but we must also regularly be taught and reminded it. Pastor John MacArthur says this, Paul's commands to Timothy contrast sharply with much contemporary or modern day preaching. Preaching in our day is often intriguing, but seldomly commanding. Often entertaining, but seldomly convicting. Often popular, but seldomly powerful. Often interesting, but less often transforming. Paul does not ask Timothy to share or make suggestions to his congregation. Rather, he is to speak the truth to them. Speaking gospel truths is not always easy for the pastor to do, because sometimes there are those who don't want to hear the truth against the backdrop of their sin. But the pastor doesn't speak for men, he speaks for God. When Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica, Timothy, who was with him, would have been well aware of Paul's words that we read in chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul is first talking about being approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, just as Timothy was. And he says, we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. If one of our pastors here at Green Tree ever has to speak into one of our lives, we must know that it is a biblical command they must follow. We also must recognize it comes from a heart that loves the Lord, loves the flock, and cares about each person. 
It is not something easy for them to do, nor is it something they enjoy doing. Hopefully, we would receive it that way if it has to happen. If we would, and not with animosity or a prideful attitude of, no one's going to tell me how to live my life, then change, confession, repentance, and restoration would go much more smoothly. Sadly, though, it can be the case in some churches that some think as if just leaving the church, not being held accountable for their sin, and going somewhere else will just make things better. That may work in the short term, but their sin will follow them wherever they go, and at some point, they will be held accountable to God for it. So what are these things Timothy is to command and teach? There seems to be some theological debate on exactly what these things are. Supposedly, the debate is centered on whether it's just the paragraph that surrounds this statement, the entire chapter, or the whole letter. I'm not picking sides, so for the purpose of tonight, and because Paul is writing a letter to Timothy to instruct him how to carry himself, what he and his flock are to aspire to, what the organization of the church should look like, and what to be wary of, and because they are all relative, I would say that these things have relevance for all Paul has written. I suppose someone could split hairs with the Greek, but I won't, nor can't. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Although it still holds somewhat today, reading this in context of the times is important here. Greater respect was given to someone's advanced age and appearance back then. Some cultures still do the same today. When I've gone on mission trips to do Muslim evangelism, we instantly gain respect and an open door for communication because of our gray hair or our beards, if we had one. It would actually be considered shameful not to talk to us, and we can use that to our advantage. For Timothy, this would not immediately be the case. How do we know this? Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth. Some translations say, let no one look down on you. The ESV has the best translation, though. This word despise in the Greek is very strong. It means to despise, to scorn, and to show it by active insult. It is used several times in Scripture to describe almost hatred towards another person. So obviously some in the church must have had issues with Timothy's age and possibly even resented him for it. Could there be another reason, though? The text doesn't give us any more than that, so I can only speculate, and of course we have to be careful with that. But think about this for a moment. Why was Paul sending Timothy to Ephesus? Because there were issues that were arising from the false teachers that were there. Could it be that some in Ephesus actually wanted them to stay in their positions of authority, and this was how they were making it known? It's possible. Or perhaps it was these false teachers who were actually stirring up division because they knew their time there was short. Of this possibility, I can only guess. But we do know there were false teachers there. Paul was in Ephesus for about three years, starting in the mid-first century, probably around year 54. This letter to Timothy looks to be written about a handful of years or so after he left. It wasn't 20 years later, and all of a sudden the church was a mess. No, false teaching crept in soon after Paul left. It wasn't immediately persuasive either. This is how false teaching works. It slips in gradually. It bears some resemblance to the truth, and that is why it can so easily be taken as truth. Its speakers can be great orators, likable and amiable, even having seemingly in-depth Bible knowledge. Yet all the while, underneath runs a current of death, sweeping many of its hearers away to eternal damnation. 
Paul speaks of these false teachers who disguise themselves as true preachers in 2 Corinthians 11. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. The book of Jude gives these solemn warnings. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that must mean they're easy to identify, right? Actually, no. Jude goes on. These are hidden reefs. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. And these people... They can be hiding in plain sight, right under our noses. Interesting, as a little aside for today's day and age, nowhere do we read of Paul giving any dire warnings that it's the government that is the main thing we need to be wary of. It's always false teachers and those within the church. So yes, we do need to be on the lookout for what governments can do, but they really aren't the church's main concern. Unless we think any of this was a surprise to Paul, this is what he said to the church leaders in Ephesus before his departure. And Glenn read this last week. In Acts 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So going back to Timothy, what do we know about his age? Commentators believe he was in his late 20s to mid-30s, with most falling in the mid-30s category. There is no age limit with God. He uses younger people throughout the Bible. Think of Jeremiah, Gideon, or David, who were all younger men who God called into service. When Jeremiah found, found out that he was set apart for preaching, he said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. God's reply to him was, Don't say, I am only a youth, for to all I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. How's that for a confidence builder? Or Gideon, who questioned how he could lead his people. The wording in the biblical narrative infers he was the youngest in his family. With God's help, Gideon went into battle and led his people to victory. Or David, who was the youngest son of Jesse, he became king at age 30, but was set apart for God's service many years before that. Ultimately, Jesus sets the perfect example as he began his ministry at about 30 years old. What scripture does tell us is that a pastor cannot be a new convert so they don't get puffed up with pride or conceit. That was not the case for Timothy. He had been well tested and approved. How was Timothy to show this back then and turn the naysayers to him? And how can any believer, young or old today, do this? Verse 12 goes on to say, by setting an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. This word example in the Greek is a pretty strong word. Think of an imprint made by a stamp or a copy, image, pattern, or model. That's the point Paul was making here of Timothy setting the example. Our walk with the Lord will win people over, so to speak. Anyone can give lip service 
But to coin a phrase, the proof is in the pudding. Again, because this letter is written first and foremost to Timothy, we must first and foremost look to the pastor. Going back to John MacArthur, he says, the single, single greatest tool of leadership is the power of an exemplary life. Puritan Thomas Brooks said, example is the most powerful rhetoric. So by being a godly example, Timothy would have quieted the mouths of those who questioned his ministry. The Bible does hold pastors up to a high standard and to be examples to the flock. And that's what Paul was holding Timothy to. Praise God that by his grace, here at Green Tree, we have wonderful pastors who are faithful men committed to the Lord and his church. So we don't have to worry there. That being said, let's be clear. Flawless and infallible are attributes that can only be assigned to God, not to pastors nor any other Christian. Although called to be mature, bold, and zealous in faith, they are men. Just like other men, they face temptations and trials. They may battle with pride, they have hurts, and they have disappointments. Probably even more than all of us, because one, Satan would like nothing more than to see a pastor fall from grace. And two, their charge is over the entire flock and souls of their church. In Ephesians 4, we read that pastors are given to equip the saints, that's us, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's quite the responsibility. Hebrews 13 tells us to obey our leaders and submit to them because they are keeping watch over our souls and we'll have to give an account for that. That can be a huge burden for them. So we need to be regularly in much prayer for them. Paul then sets forth five categories to Timothy to set the example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. These are all important because they are marks of our inward as well as our outward character. What does Paul say in his other letters about these categories for Christians? For our speech, there should be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Yes, that includes dirty jokes too. No lying, deceit, gossip, or slander should come from our mouths either. Nor should any corrupting talk or obscenities come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up. That includes curse words too. And as an aside, if you're repeating something someone else said, and there's a curse word in it, that prohibition would include not repeating that word. So here's an interesting point to ponder. If we are to watch our speech in all these ways, is there anything wrong with watching television, going to the movies, or listening to music where we are hearing this kind of speech? This definitely is a topic that is a little more thought-provoking. Going back to Thomas Vincent, the Puritan, the book I was reading, he said that we should shut our ears against profane and filthy communication when we hear it. This is not legalism, because we're not seeking to earn or anything from God. We're doing it because we want to live holy lives. Pastor Erica said that those of us teaching on Wednesday nights do have a little latitude. So I'll tell you my personal thoughts on this, but would also say that each of us should at least consider it individually. My desire is not to go too far out on a limb, although if I do, I'm sure I will hear about it. 
I will also give a public service announcement that the following views do not necessarily reflect the beliefs of the pastoral staff here at Green Tree. Although they may. So I stopped watching television, about most television, about four months ago. I basically only watched two news shows and two very tame reality shows, two or three. One thing that caused me to do this is Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is ex- any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. As I would watch TV, I would cringe, turn the channel, or delete the program if I heard any really bad curse words. Unless, of course, the program was really good. Right? <laughs> Interestingly, I would put up with the not-so-bad curse words and just downplay them as not being so bad. As the Spirit of God worked in me, though, I began to get convicted. I admit this was difficult because there are a lot of shows on television that I like to watch. But if I was going to hold to Philippians 4.8, how could I do that while I allowed those curse words to permeate my mind? For me, I couldn't. This is also a reason why I will probably never go to the movies again. Bad language in movies has become so common that it doesn't even bother us as it should. And I'm not even talking about content. One reviewer I read for a popular sci-fi movie in theaters now that is rated for 13-year-olds and up said, sure, there's bad language throughout, but our kids know not to repeat it, so it doesn't bother me. Shouldn't that bother us as parents? Or think of the movie Saving Private Ryan. I think most everyone would agree it's a great movie. I actually love that movie. But there is so much foul language in it that personally, I don't think any Christian should watch it. When I said that to another brother, he said, but it's historical. I said, well, maybe we should just read the history book instead. Anyway, those are my short thoughts on that topic, and you are absolutely free to disagree or agree with me, but I would ask that you would at least consider these things and ask the Lord to direct you what you might do. Paul mentions conduct next, another outward characteristic. Going back to Ephesians 4, we read, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's face it, there are times when we might need to be harder or sterner or more forceful in our conduct. But this cannot be the regular pattern of our life. If a person is regularly described as flying off the handle, then they definitely need to consider Paul's words here. Next is love. How should we love God? How should we love other believers? Is Jesus first and foremost in our lives? If so, does our life reflect that in how we live? What do we devote our time, talents, and money to? How about towards our brothers and sisters in Christ if they are in need? The kingdom of God must take precedence over the kingdom of the world, even if the latter includes our unbelieving family members. Don't get me wrong, we don't ignore them, it's not what I'm saying, because we want our love for the Lord to influence them and have God use us to draw them to him. But who comes first when push comes to shove? And I'm also not saying that we can't ever forego Sunday church or Wednesday night, unless I'm teaching, because... (laughs) because we have a vacation planned or some big family thing going on. But if this thing becomes a regular pattern, then we should probably consider Paul's words here. 
Or perhaps Jesus' words in Matthew 12. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Or his even harsher words in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, if you struggle with that verse, please know that Jesus is not saying that we need to hate our family. What he's saying is that love for him, devotion for him, must be first and must take precedence over everything and everyone else. As far as fellow believers, can it be hard to love some? Sure. But we read this in 1 John 4. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given this, us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. How about someone who has open hostility towards the gospel or us? Are we to love them too? Yes, because they are sinners in need of God's grace. And at in one point in time, in some way, shape, or form, we were all like them <coughs> too before God rescued us. Of course, we can't actually love someone like that the same way we love those near and dear to us. But we can show the love of Christ to them, try to serve them, come alongside of them, not always bombarding them with the gospel. And if none of that is possible, we can pray for them. I'm going to skip faith for a minute and go into purity because I want to talk a little more in depth on faith. Purity here means in the sense of moral purity and proper sexual conduct and being free from immoral acts. But can also mean of the mind and motives. Anyone have any battles going on in that department in the mind? Although the times back then were rife with pagan sexual conduct, what Paul may be inferencing here, we, can we say that we're any better in today's society? The sexualization of America culture is rampant and filled with ungodly influences. Some of it is subliminal, working on our minds little by little, and much of it is blatant and in our faces every day. And perhaps there are some out there but I don't know any Christian who isn't affected in some way by it, whether in the push to conformity to the world's standards or in their struggle or battles of the flesh to engage in it. This phone, as you know, which most over the age of 13 probably have, is the doorway to an infinite number of paths, some decorated to look harmless and beneficial, where it is easy to get sucked in and consumed and can greatly harm, if not destroy, a person's life. God's word demands purity, though. And we desperately need the Spirit's help to convict us in any areas that run contrary to his word. And then we need his help to live the lives we're called to live. Now faith. Paul is talking first and foremost to Timothy again. So he is to be strong in faith as an example to the flock. And as an example of what the flock can aspire to or attain. And we all start out weak and ignorant in the things of God. And Glenn spoke last week what it means to train ourselves for godliness. We know it takes work. The will of God and human responsibility or effort go hand in hand. 
We can't sit back and do nothing and just wait for the Holy Spirit to magically work strong, bold, zealous faith in us. It doesn't work that way. We also can't do, do, do without the Holy Spirit doing his part. The minister is to emulate this to their flock, and we are to individually grow into maturity as we avail ourselves of the means God has given us. My 17-year-old son works out all the time. As a result, he has gotten pretty darn strong. He's lifting weights that he probably only dreamed of when he first started. He didn't let his initial weakness, though, deter him from getting stronger. He is disciplined and focused on his goals. As a result of that, he and we have seen some pretty incredible growth. Even though he's strong, he's not stopping there because he wants to get stronger. There is a similarity for us in faith, too. Are we disciplined, intent, focused, always wanting to grow in faith? Maybe most importantly of all, do we believe that we can be the people that the Bible says we can be? Are the pillars of faith in the scripture an anomaly for only a select few? Or are they put forth as an example for all believers to follow and aspire to? If you were here last time I spoke, I said that if you didn't believe in the seriousness of the church, then there are some pages that you'd have to rip out of your Bibles. That goes with faith, too. There are numbers of passages that speak of the faith that we can have in the lives that we are to live. 2 Corinthians 7, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 1 Peter 1, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Or 2 Peter 3, what sort of people should we be in lives of godliness and holiness? Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. In a few weeks in chapter 6, you'll hear Paul's commands to strive after righteousness, godliness, and faith. He says strive because it isn't easy and it takes work. But God doesn't. He can't give us biblical commands and not the ability to achieve them. Every believer can, but it cannot be on their own power. We must be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, according to Ephesians 6. Paul regularly reminds us in his letters who we are in Christ and the power that works in and through us. In ourselves, yes, we are weak. And it's important to acknowledge our own weakness. But we are not in ourselves anymore. We are in Christ. So we must proclaim our strength in Christ. We are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This means our identity has changed. We are not defined by what we once were. Words and phrases like unrighteous or sinner, children of wrath, enemies of God, are no more. Sure, we can act that way at times, but it's not who we are by definition. Who we are has been radically altered. What defines us now is child of God, heirs of the promise, redeemed, righteous, holy, good, victorious. Because we have been born again by the Spirit, we can be strong and courageous, bold and zealous, living lives that bring honor and praise to our King, and living holy, righteous, and honorable lives. To deny the work that the Spirit can do in our lives is tantamount to denying God's Word. There is also a juxtaposition here that we must understand too. 
It's never patting ourselves on the back, right? Check me out or aren't I great? We recognize who we once were in ourselves versus who we now are in Christ and then bringing it before God as praise to him for what he rescued us from and in all humility giving him the glory, honor, and praise because there wasn't anything that we did to get there. Because these are God's truths about us, we need to live in them and not in the past that once defined us. If we don't and we stay in the past or in the default language of who we once were, it will be harder to believe or manifest the fruits of the Spirit that really are there waiting for every believer. This is one reason why Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 to put off our old self and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. To put off and to put on are verbs, so they imply action on our part. To put off in the Greek is to lay aside, renounce, or stow away. That's what has truly been done by God with our old identity, and it is also what we must do in the mindset of that old identity as well as with our sin, because we now have the power to overcome. This isn't easy, can't stand up here and say that's easy because we still have our sinful nature. But do we believe that it's possible? To put on is to clothe or to be clothed with. Now we know through faith every believer is now clothed, clothed with the righteousness of Christ once and for all by his work and merit. But Paul is actually talking about our behavior too. That's clear from the context. We are to put off bad behavior and put on new or righteous behavior. Paul's saying, stop living like you used to and start living in the life that you have now been called to. He's saying this is to be our trajectory and a work that we must seek to do daily so we can grow in righteousness in our walk. Again, our mindset is including this. We must no longer live in what used to define us. Instead, we live in what defines us now as God's children. And this is why we need strong faith to believe that we can. Again, it's important. How do we do this? Not on our own strength. We need God's help. But we try not to give in to temptation. We watch every part of our lives. We seek to honor Christ with all that we do. We don't believe the lies of Satan. We reject the things of the world if they run contrary to the things of Christ. Thankfully, as I said, we are not called to do anything in the faith-growing department on our own. God never brings us to faith and then says, fend for yourself. His spirit is implanted in us in part for the purpose of making us and giving us the power to be who he calls us to be. Wouldn't it be nice if it was that easy, though? Unfortunately, we have an adversary who wants nothing more than to instill unbelief in us and cause us to fail and sin. Although the phrase, the devil made me do it, is not true because Satan cannot make us do anything, what he does do is to work on or target what is already there. If you have a seed of unbelief in your heart, he is a master of trying to water it and make it grow. If you only have a flickering fire or a tiny zeal for the Lord in your heart, he is a master of trying to put a lid on it to put it out. This seed of unbelief can continue to grow, affecting all areas of our faith and walk. This unbelief is also probably one of the biggest enemies the Christian has. And to be clear, I don't mean unbelief as in we're still growing and there's things we don't know. Unbelief I'm talking about is knowing God's promises hearing it taught, and still refusing to believe in them. This type of unbelief will lead to sluggishness and the means God has given us. 
If I can't be who God says I can be, why bother trying? We try, we press on, we strive, because God has made promises to us. Well, we believe Ephesians 1, that we have the immeasurable greatness of God's power for us. Or will we believe the lie of the devil? Or, I'm almost hesitant to say this, the lie of the devil perpetuated perhaps through unbelief from fellow believers. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. This belief in who we are is the trajectory we need to be on, our aim, our goal. Not, I have to be perfect today. But Lord, help me to be faithful today. Believing that by the power of the Spirit who lives, us, lives inside of us that we can be faithful and not sin. Psalm 119 says, Keep steady my steps according to your promises and let no iniquity get dominion over me. And when we do sin, and yes, we will sin, we confess it and repent and ask God for strength, especially in the areas that we all individually battle with. And so I suppose the question we must ask ourselves is, who will I believe? Will I believe God Almighty who has given us his promises? Or will I believe in the one who has no real power on his own and because he is chained and fettered by God to do his will? The asking of this question is, of course, I recognize much easier than the answering because we can feel the regular onslaught of demonic attacks wearing us down. You're not worthy. You're no good. You'll never be who God says you can be, so stop trying. It can reverberate in our minds. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just thoughts that seem to take us away from the Lord or take us to places that we just don't want to go. Like most of you, I feel these attacks on a semi-regular basis. Have you ever had that happen while singing in church? Singing praise to the Lord, lifting your arms up to the Lord, and your mind is somewhere completely different. Amazing. That's sinful and needing of repentance every time. God has given us his promises for a reason, not so we can use them against him. As in, you know, God, my life isn't going the way that your word says it should. No, we need to understand that there is a vast difference between telling God what he has to do versus pleading the promises of what he has said he will do. This is why knowing God's word is so important. And these promises, we can hold them up to him in faith because God has staked his name on them. Verse 13. Till I come to you, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Back in Timothy's days, because no one had a Bible, the public reading of scripture was even more important. They couldn't just pull up their Bible app on their phone. Reading isn't enough, though. Paul says that Timothy must also exhort them. The Greek word here means to encourage or can be holy, H-O-L-Y, or personal urging by a person. Paul then says Timothy must also teach God's word. Here again, reading it publicly is not enough. Although Paul is saying these are things Timothy must do, I think there's also an inverse application for us. As the preacher speaks and teaches, we must also listen and apply the words that are read. We are the recipients of the pastor's urgings and encouragements as they impress them upon us, so we must recognize excuse me, our need to be taught the truths of God's word. Without actually saying it, I think this verse is alluding to our need to be in church regularly where this would happen. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So what is this gift that Timothy was given? 
The honest truth is we just don't know. In 2 Timothy 1, we read how Paul wanted to remind Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God that was in him. Again, there's no explanation of what this gift is. By prophecy, seems to indicate that it was some form of divine prophetic revelation. Many commentators believe it was Timothy's gifting as a young preacher and leader that the passage is referencing. This does seem to make sense in the context. So how would he fan into flame this gift of God? Well, walking backwards through our text, it would be by his devotion to the public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching from verse 13. Because the more he did it, the better he would have gotten. If you've ever taught or led a group in anything, you know this is the case and it's true. So is there any application for us here? I would say, what gift do you have that can be used to serve the church and its people? Whatever it is, we can't neglect it, but we need to fan it into flame by using it whenever possible. This church couldn't operate if not for the hard work and commitment of its people. When we got flooded out a couple years ago, numbers of people, whether professionals or lay people, came forward to help, some volunteering countless numbers of hours to get the work done. Think of the church picnic we just had and the numbers of people who came to help because they love the church and its mission. How many serve in children's ministry, whether teaching a lesson or just being an extra body that is needed, or hospitality. Then there's the untold number of people who volunteer their time here behind the scenes and in anonymity. People who clean the bathrooms, vacuum the floors, and do any number of things that need to be done. Sitting on the sidelines and never doing anything is not what the scriptures speak about for those in the church. We are all gifted in one way or another. And if you're not sure what that area is, pray about it, but also act. Try something and see where it leads. You may be surprised where the Holy Spirit leads you. And don't hesitate to speak to a pastor about it, even if you have no idea what to do, or perhaps aren't even sure if you can do much at all. Remember, God never looks at the volume that we do. He looks at the heart and even the smallest thing that we do. Because to sit on the sidelines, I'm sorry, I just said that. So I think the story of the widow's offering in Mark 12 speaks to this. If you remember, Jesus was watching people put money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, but a poor widow came and put in the equivalent of a penny. Jesus praised her as putting in more than the rich people because it came from the heart. Likewise, he sees our hearts and is honored by even what we might call the smallest offering or service to his church. Verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. To practice is to plan, practice, exercise ourselves in study or to attend to carefully. Maybe like a teacher planning a lesson. This obviously goes far deeper and say practicing a musical instrument 30 minutes every other day and hoping you hit the big stage. That's not going to happen. So what are these things Timothy is to practice? Paul is immediately referencing verses 12 to 13. He's saying practice your speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, public reading of scripture, exhortation, and teaching. Here again we see the link between the mystery of divine work and the responsibilities of believers. As I mentioned before, we can't just sit back and do nothing and act, act, ask the Holy Spirit to do all the work in us. We can think back to the Old Testament, for example, where God said, the battle is already won. Or, I have given this nation into your hand. 
But now you got to go out and fight and do your part. Or we know salvation comes only by the Lord. Yet we are his instruments by which salvation will come. One doesn't get done without the other. This should cause us to bow in awe and wonder that God would use us this way. Of course, we need to see it in the right perspective as we are nothing without God, not the other way around. But we are his holy instruments set apart or consecrated for his use. You can look back to number seven and see a foreshadowing of this when Moses consecrated all the vessels and utensils for holy use. They were set apart and could not be used for ordinary means. To do that would be to profane what was set apart for the use in the tabernacle. In a similar way, all true believers have been consecrated and set apart for God's holy use and not to be used in profane ways. Again, easier said than done sometimes, I know. But not to be too redundant, how you see yourself matters. This is also why we have to practice these things, because our talk is nothing without our walk, and people can see right through a hypocritical life. Second Timothy 2, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable, honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. God, of course, can use anyone, but there is power in our words when we walk uprightly. Paul makes this awesome statement about divine work and human responsibility in 2 Corinthians 5, right after he speaks about how we are new creation in Christ. Now, mainly he's talking to the pastor first about the pastor. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to him and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. That's amazing language. Almost too good to be true. Paul goes on in chapter 6, verse 1, speaking of the Lord, he says, we work together with him. When we were born again into God's kingdom, we weren't simply given a pass on all of our sins. No, we came to Christ as the Lord who rules over our lives. This infers an awesome responsibility on our part to reflect the glory of our king in all we say and do. Did you know that you were signing up for this when you considered Jesus? This is one reason why Jesus says in Luke 14 that we must count the cost of coming to him. Many come to Jesus as savior because, let's face it, who doesn't want forgiveness from their sins? But far fewer come to him as Lord. Many reject this part because they still want to reign over their lives and not bow in submission to him. Sadly for them, their veiled profession of faith will turn out to be just that, a profession done in word alone. This is just another example why the Bible tells us to test and examine our faith. Paul goes on to say that Timothy is to immerse himself in these things so that all may see his progress. This word immerse in the Greek is a very interesting word. It has a sense of existence, being, B-E-I-N-G, or identity. It can mean absorbed in or be in them. The King James and NIV would translate immerse as give yourselves wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, or fully to them. The same Greek word comes from John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life for the word am. 
I think what Paul is saying is that all these things he's commanded to Timothy and for us are not just to be head knowledge and not just outward actions alone, but are to permeate his whole being and again, ours too, as if they are the very essence of our being. That's actually a great prayer everyone can have. Honestly, I've prayed something to that effect for years, that God's word would so permeate my life, my mind, and my heart that it would be who I am. God wants that for all his children. So if you pray that prayer and use the means God has given you to get there, he will answer it. So think about this. A bucket of soapy water, big rock, and one of those big car sponges. You know, if you put that rock in that soapy water, pull it out, it's going to be soapy, right? But no matter how long you leave that rock in there, it's not going to permeate that rock. It's just going to be outward, and in a matter of minutes, it's going to be dry. You put that soapy, that big sponge in there, squeeze that thing once, it's filled with soapy water, right? You can't get it out. You can pull that thing out, squeeze it, squeeze it, soap, soap, soap. You can spray it with water, soap, 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 soap. Like how much soap could there be in there, right? I think that's what Paul is talking about, that would so be who we are. And of course, as we grow in holiness and righteousness of behavior and maturity, it would be impossible for all not to see our progress, as Paul said to Timothy. Last verse. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. There's that testing and examining of our faith again. Paul is writing to Timothy in part because false teachers have crept into the church. We know that. He's telling, be careful, Timothy. All these things I've written to you, keep them close to heart and close to at hand. Don't swerve from these things. Be strong, bold, and zealous in handling God's word, handling yourself, and handling God's people. Preaching the truth matters, Timothy, because people's eternities are at stake. This is not something that can be taken lightly or casually because your charge is to watch over their souls and you will be held accountable for how you do that. The word Paul uses for saved is used many times in scripture. It can mean either in a salvic or saving way via faith when Jesus saves someone or in a temporal rescuing, delivering out of danger or destruction, and bringing into safety way. Here Paul is using the word both ways. Every believer needs to be saved, unbeliever needs to be saved in the former sense of the word. And every true Christian needs to be warned what the dangers of false teaching can be, especially if they're walking down the road to apostasy, which would be the latter sense of the word. So for Timothy, we know that he was already saved, so the exhortation for him is to keep a vigilant watch on himself and to keep his preaching aligned with God's word. There's also an important component for this for the true believers in the church. The preaching of God's word is meant to keep us on course and to keep us from being steered into false doctrine because although going off course can be done little by little, in seemingly insignificant ways, eventually we can end up far from where we want or should be. Think of a little kid out back Walks into the woods one step at a time, right? One step at a time. Next thing, they're completely lost. They didn't take one big step and get there. They took lots of little steps, and next thing you know, they're lost. Right doctrine matters, and so we need to know and be taught biblical truths so that we can be instructed how to live and to keep us from the dangers that are out there. This, of course, only happens as we actually heed God's word and put it into action in our lives. As I said, Paul uses this word saved in both ways, In our passage, he doesn't limit Timothy's preaching and teaching solely to believers. No, he says the teaching would save the hearers of his words. Why? Because we know God's word can also save a person from eternal damnation. 
Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing God's word as it's preached and taught through the Bible. It saves because the Bible is unlike any other book out there. As we heard from Hebrews 4 a few Sundays ago, God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. James 1, God brought us forth by the word of truth. 1 Peter 1, we have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Or we all know the story in the Gospels where the seed that was sown is likened to the word of God. Some seed takes root and grows, other doesn't. And because we know that in all churches there are both believers and unbelievers, it's safe to say that Paul is not only encouraging Timothy to continue steadfast in the preaching of God's word because it is the means God uses to strengthen his people, but also because God's word will bring people to faith. Paul's words of command and teach to Timothy or any present-day pastor are for us as the congregation to listen and obey and learn, not in little sips either. No, believers are not only to taste the gospel, but we are to drink in its fullness. To the unbeliever or a person who is a Christian in profession only and not in possession of true faith, This rejection of the cup of God's goodness and the neglecting to drink it in is a rejection of God himself and will result in everlasting torment. To the true Christian, or again, maybe one by profession only, who doesn't think it's important to drink it in and receive all that God has for them and who thinks that it's okay to live this way in the things of God is in fact, and I don't say this lightly, saying to God, I'd rather have something else fill and nourish me. And it is a sign of a nominal and casual life that doesn't bring honor and glory to God. I hope we'd all agree that this is a place none of us wants to be in when we stand before him on that day. Because one, the Bible gives us some stern warnings against this type of attitude. And two, and most importantly of all, no one wants to find out once it's too late that the cup of God's goodness that he gave us to drink in this life, which was meant to lead us to him and bring us and build us in faith, actually turns out to be a cup of God's wrath for neglecting him by living casually towards him. Although Paul's words to Timothy in chapter 2, or 2 Timothy chapter 2, are for him as a pastor, I think we can all take heed and live our lives by them as we leave tonight. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you how you work in our lives. We need conviction. We need help in all areas. You know, there's so many areas in our lives where we have battles going on, and so we need you desperately, Lord. We want to live lives that bring you honor and glory and praise, and in ourselves, we are so weak, we can't do anything. And so pour forth your spirit into our lives. Lift us up. Let us believe these truths and to live for your glory, seeking you, studying your word, attending regularly, praying, all these things that you've given to us as the means of grace uh, that people would see in us. It couldn't help but to be seen who we are in you, Jesus. All glory and praise and honor to you. Amen.